So, welcome to the Normal Gets You Nowhere podcast, Joe. Thank you for asking me, Sean. Good to see you here. Yeah, good to have you. So, um, when I was doing a li- little bit of research for today, I realised that we are approaching 18 years of knowing each other. 18 years of friendship. <laughs> Some might say that. Um, so, uh, so, we obviously first met when I joined Rolf East. Yeah. You had been there for two years already? Yeah, I think it was two years just coming up to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... You know, without blowing too much smoke, I, I remember when I joined Rolf East, I asked for the names of the best performing agents and everyone kept on saying your name. That's kind of you to say. Um, so, so, yeah, for my sins, I approached you to, to try and learn the way. I think so, but I think you already had a lot of experience at that time, didn't you? Because then you also went down. I remember, I think, the, the second time I met you, there was a period between when you started. Actually, that's a, that 18 years, that's just blown my mind. Actually, I didn't know that until you mentioned it just before. Yeah. Um, uh, I hadn't thought about it in that way. And um, and I think you actually had a development at the time. Do you remember the one down in Hanwell? Yes. And that no one had managed to sell anything. Yeah. yeah. And then I think everyone was embarrassed because after you joined, I think you'd sold like 30% of it within a few weeks. I didn't pay Joe to say that either. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> yeah I do remember that actually. Yeah. I remember yeah. That. yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we go quite a while back um but one thing i do remember when i when i first started spending time with you you were in the acting office with ben at that yeah, point yeah that was the that was the second office i was in yeah I think the first one i was in northfields yeah. for like two years i think yeah but i always remember you knowing literally everything about the properties you were selling which side of the street they were in um you know you if you asked you a question about your property you would know it and that always sort of struck a chord with me um I, I always found that fascinating so um you know I, I probably don't say it enough to you but I've, I've always respected you as, a, as an agent um, oh, thanks. but yeah so obviously you, we spent time at Roll Feast I then left Roll Feast mm-hmm. um and you were there for a few more years and you went on to open Orchards of London yeah so talk us through how that happened and what that sort of journey entailed. Yeah, that's actually some of the stuff that you said there, I haven't even thought about that for like a, a really, really long time. Um, uh, so I joined Roll Feast when I was 16. And I remember, um, you know, I, there was that thought process and I was sort of, you know, finishing, I think my first year of AS levels and uh, realising that it wasn't for me and I wasn't enjoying it. And I was actually working in a retail store I had a weekend job at British Home Stores and I was selling the store credit cards on Saturdays and Sundays. And then I actually approached some guy, actually how I got into a state agency is I approached a guy to give him a pitch to sell him a store credit card. And, and you know, he politely said, no, not, not for him. But he actually said, I'm an estate agency. I think you'd be really good at that. And he just left, he imparted that. And I remember that just staying with me. And then when I was thinking about, right, I don't really, I don't want to stay in school or what should I go and do? And then I actually saw an advert for a junior estate agency position at Rolf East. And it kind of clicked with what that guy had said. And then I went for an interview, I got the job. And I started in the Norfields branch. I was there for two years. And then that's when I transferred to the acting office. And then we, we, we met yeah. each other. Um, but that was a really great company to work for. And um, it taught me a lot because of the style of business that they do because they're an independent company. Yeah. So while it was, obviously it's a business, it's very much driven on the revenue that you generate and you know, you've know got to perform. 
there was a, a real emphasis on customer service and relationships. Um, so that's really stayed with me. I think if you ask me now what my business is, it's, it's kind of two things. It's property and people. Yeah. And I think the people part really started there yeah. because if I look at what I do now and the relationships that I've got, um, all of the business that I do comes from having good relationships with people that I've known for a really long period of time. And I think when you first meet someone, you never know where a relationship's going to go. And that comes back to kind of like who I'm in business with now. Yeah. Um, Just going back to the relationship element and learning that at Roll Feast, yeah. I think I know the answer, but who... Who had the biggest influence in that particular part of the business? Yeah, that was Ashley. Yeah. Yeah, that was Ashley. Yeah. I think, you know, what actually what really stays with me today is that you can say anything you want to someone as long as you say it with kindness. Yeah. And he showed me a lot of kindness because he was really patient because when I first joined the company, I was 16. So, you know, you've got a place of business and he's given a job to someone who's still learning, you know, how, how to... Um, uh, how to operate as an estate agent. I think when you join the industry when you're really young, you're not a brilliant communicator. You've obviously got a good idea of, of how you should communicate with people and how to be professional. But um, I think he really allowed me to kind of grow up in that company. Yeah. And so, you know, I still speak to him today, but he was a major influence in my life until I was until I was 25. And actually, you know, I stayed with, I stayed with them for, um, for a number of years. And the main reason why I stayed is because of my relationship with him. Yeah. And um, so I'm very, very grateful to him, actually, for everything that he taught me. Um, but yeah, you know, I think you meet people along the way that you do business with. And there's certain things that, and the way that people will um, carry themselves and conduct business. And I think you take a bit of everyone that you meet and yeah. you think, I like that. And you try and take it on board and kind of make it yours. Yeah. Um, and I think actually a lot of what he taught me uh, stood me well for growing a team at Orchards of London. And I think if I didn't have him as a role model before, I wouldn't have been able to grow yeah. the team to the size that I did in the way that I would have liked to, but using some of the tools that he definitely passed on, 100%. Yeah, it's funny you say that, because I, again, only thought of this really in preparation for today, but I think Ashley had a, or has had a big influence on me mm. and how I manage my team now and even in my previous role. So just the way he dealt with everyone. Yeah. Always had time for people. He did. He knew what to say and yeah. when to say it. Yeah. Oh, I think timing of what he said was really important. But also, I think, you know, you can uh, you can lead a big team. I think, actually, um, he doesn't um, run a large business. He does. But what he actually does is he leads a large team yeah. because he actually gets involved with clients. He sits. If you walk past the office, you'll see him in the front of the office. Mm -hmm. Um, in working amongst the team. And I think it's really, really important to be connected and stay close to your team. And if you look at the amount of time that he's been in the industry and you walk past the office, you know, he could be anywhere, but he's still sitting in the front of that office. He's doing very different things. He's not always dealing with clients, but I walked past the office the other day. And, you know, there he was sitting in yeah. the front, you know, so. Yeah. Always there, always there. Um, so moving on to Orchards. Yes. You co-founded Orchards. I did. In June 2009. Yeah, we did. We're Long time born. ago now. Yeah. Um, so so how did that all start? And How did that all start? So um, uh, I started the business with Paul. And, you know, talking about relationships, you never know where they're going to go. And, you know, Paul's a really successful business person. Um, and at the time, I 
was uh, a sales no senior sales negotiator uh, in Rolf East, and then I'd uh, moved on to manager. And then Paul was a mortgage broker at another company, but worked in Rolf East, and then he set up his own mortgage broking company and became the sole provider for uh, mortgage uh, services within Rolf East. And um, the idea was actually Paul's. So Paul came to me and I think there was another business that he'd seen that had opened up the year before that we mentioned earlier that was actually billing quite a lot of lettings revenue at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, the sales market really wasn't performing very well. And uh, Paul actually came to me and said, I've got an idea to set up an estate agency. Obviously, Paul's not actually an estate agent and I was, but he was a very, very good business person. And he had, um, you know, he had, uh, he's got a vast, uh, you know, he's got, he's got a wide skill set. And, and, you know, he came to me with the idea and said, do you want to do this? And my immediate thought is, uh, my immediate thought was, uh, would I actually go and work? Would I leave Rolf East and work for another company? I had many opportunities over the years, but I don't think there would have been another business where I would have uh, grown professionally in the same way. Yeah. You know, so I really wanted to stay there. So my thought process was if I wasn't going to earn a lot of money in a low um, sales market at the time, I'd rather try and see how it goes. And if I don't earn a lot of money, what have I really lost? Yeah. Um, and then we started Orchards of London in June 2009. I'll never, uh, it was actually, it was in June, it was on the day, uh, I remember the day we opened up. It was like the, um, it was the day of Royal Ascot. And we'd actually been like a couple of years before. And then we were like, no, you know, we've got to be really serious. So we actually decided to open on that day instead of going out and socialising. But when we actually started, we, we didn't have a lot of money. We actually started the business from the front room of his house in Lowfield Road. I remember that. In Acton. Yeah. So estate agents had to, when they came to our office to collect keys, they came to the front room of his house and knocked on his door. We got lots of calls from agents actually after we were open a few months. I'm outside this bungalow in West Acton. I'm looking for your office. Like, yeah, come and knock on the door. We're inside. I'll give you the keys. But um, we started with uh, three desks, three telephones, a filing cabinet, a map, and a link to Rightmove. Oh my God. And we previously um obviously we went through a process of several months before you know designing the brand looking at our roles and how we were going to work and we decided to aggressively canvas uh the lettings business um in the Ealing area and then you know we started I think on day one when we opened we, we charged some very very low fees and we started with 12 listings on top of that other list of items that was that was like, that was the opening of our business yep. and um and then on the, I remember our first uh, phone call came in at 10 past 10. Um, obviously, we'd made phone calls from when we opened at nine, but our first phone call came at 10 past 10. It was somebody requested to view a one-bedroom flat on Drayton Avenue. And it was like, you know, great, we got our first viewing, yeah. you know. And so I was ecstatic. And then I went and done the viewing myself at 12.30. And then they came back to the office to pay a deposit. When you say the office, the, yeah, bu the bungalow. The bungalow. They yeah. came back to Paul's front room in yeah. his house. And they, and they paid a deposit. And um, it, I, I, I'd always remember after that moment, it, we, we actually hadn't set up all of our processes of what we were going to do after. Because it was like, okay, is this going to work? And on day one, it was like, this is going to work. Yeah. So we obviously streamlined our processes after that. And, um, but that was a real moment of this is going to work. Yeah. This is going to go somewhere. Um, we've got the ability to do it. And then it, it just sort of grew from there, really. It just sort of snowballed. And then we took on our first member of staff four weeks after that. 
talking about second member of staff four weeks after that and then we secured a lease for an office in Ealing Common in August of that year and I remember we refurbished it over actually poor project management refurbishment over September October November and then we opened that in January and actually you know when you think about some of your career highlights I always remember when I um, started as an estate agent I was I wanted to you know become a um, senior and then when you're a senior you develop your skill set like yeah. yeah then you want to be a manager and then there was that period of time of when I thought yeah one day I want to own my own estate agency and it was very different to opening up in Lowfield Road because it didn't feel like an estate agency it very much was yeah. and we were building business and we were growing a team and we had a brand but there's that real difference between you open a high street office so I remember on the day that we opened I stood on the door of that branch and I was just my mind was just kind of blown in a yeah. way because it had gone so quickly over six months because we didn't actually have the money for an office we actually generated the money within the first three months of opening yeah to be able to invest in an office pretty impressive it, it feels that way looking back on it but at the time it just kind of happened so quickly because we weren't running a big business yeah. we were just two people who had an idea grew a brand and I think there was a real gap in the market at that time as well but also um, our sole focus, both of us, was to build business. And I think because our, both of our focus was on it at that time, we made the money to open the office. Yeah. Um, and then it just sort of snowballed from there, really. I always remember your cars. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the name of those cars, but they, they had an impact. Yeah, the Nissan Figaro's. Yeah, that's them. So yeah. how long was it until you got your fleet of those? Because it felt like the streets of Ealing and Acton were flooded, we're with, flooded them. with them. Yeah, that was, that was more because we made members of staff drive around for a period of time <laughs> sort of to, to be able to get the brand out there. But actually, we, uh, me and Paul were having ideas around, you know, um, how can we stand out? And I think if you look at the time, you know, Foxons many years before, they'd done some great work with their brands and some yeah. great work with their offices. And they had the... Um, the Mini Coopers. And that really, really took off. And then what you actually had is a lot of other companies that had normal cars with branding on that had an impact, but I don't think they really made an impression on people like the, um, yeah. the Foxons cars yeah. made the impression. And then though I think I hadn't really seen those cars around and then Paul mentioned them. And when we looked at them, once you'd actually seen one, you couldn't unsee it. You then yeah. started spotting them around. But they were a real maintenance nightmare because they're quite old. Yeah. Um, and we had to import them uh, from Japan. So actually, you imported we, all of those parts? Yeah, we did. We did. did well, we bought them. the first two locally. Yeah. And then we, we uh, branded them. And then people started seeing them around. Yeah. And then we said we worked for Orchards of London. Whenever I was speaking to people, yeah. they said, well, you know, who are you? And then I had to try and explain us. And I was just said, you know with a company with, with a car so I right now know who you guys are so that actually really really helped cement our brand and then as our office grew we then had nine people working in our office and we had some people using their own cars and then we had two of these cars and then um, we actually um, imported some from Japan and then that's how and then the fleet grew yeah and so did our service repair bill yeah. but, so we actually had those cars I think for the first three years of being in business and I yeah. think actually um, if you asked at the time uh, who watches of London, not everyone would have known, but you yeah. would have definitely have seen our cars. I, I would probably agree. Yeah, Those 100%. cars were, we were obviously the competition yeah. and they used to drive me up the wall. Um, they used to just frustrate me seeing them because it just felt like you were taking oh. over. Well, it felt, I think also we had, um, we, we wouldn't read, uh, take a listing on unless we had a board. Yeah. So 
um, you know, I think, you know, when you get back to a state, a basics of a state agency, I think we're like, we're marketeers of our clients' properties, but also ourselves. Yeah. And the way that we marketed ourselves at that time is we had to use every opportunity we could. So when I think about the cars, I remember actually the, the, the night before we picked them up and then we got them branded and then we actually drove along the Uxbridge Road. I, I literally yeah. from Hanwell all the way through West Ealing through Ealing Broadway and traffic was gridlocked so it actually worked quite well at the time but we wouldn't let anyone in or out of that like nine car um, of that nine car group and then we just drove literally all the way up to um, Acton uh, through the high street double back off the veil and then drove all the way back again and then like my phone started ringing and people were like I think I've just seen these cars yeah. and so we started to feel the impact from there I think long term they weren't really good because um they really weren't sustainable just because of actually they weren't you know once yeah. in a few months so all of them would break down and I think when you've got a group of young salespeople who are billing business and doing really well there's a tipping point where they're like can I get out of this really, really old car yeah, now? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's why we yeah. actually changed in the end to the Fiat 500s. Yeah. Yeah. Again, though, you had a pretty big fleet of those cars. Yeah, we did. At the time, I think we also chose the colour that no one else has had at the time, which was white, and then we put yeah. a branding all over it. Yeah. I think um, they're, they're really good city cars, and I think it worked well at that time. And I think after, I think because we were looking at cars that other estate agents didn't have that were small city cars, there really wasn't a lot of options out there. But I think yeah. the car had just been released maybe the year before at the time. Pretty trendy. Yeah, so they were pretty trendy. And um, yeah, they worked really well for us at the time. Yeah. So so looking back at your time with Orchards, obviously mm -hmm. there was huge success. Um, what was the, the biggest challenge in opening it and sustaining it and growing it? <laughs> I think the, the, the biggest challenge is... Uh, growing a business and growing a brand um, and um, holding on to and maintaining your core values, I think. But also as well, you look at it and think, it, you know, as an estate agent, is it better to have uh, two offices that perform really well where you've got all of your core people in, in sort of one or two rooms? or And then you grow to uh, four offices and you've got to spread those people out. So what you've got to be able to do is make sure that you've got a culture and an environment where people want to stay because the more you expand if you fly like, i remember in eden common that was an environment that was so great to work in it was so exciting because there was a real buzz so you had the two owners of the business both sitting in the room and by the time we were um three years old no two when we were two years old we had uh after six months we had six people that stayed with us from 18 months to two years and i think Yes, they did do very well financially. Um, and I think that was important and the reason why they stayed. But I really identified in that moment. You know that, what we were speaking about earlier about Ashley? Yeah. I think that's when that really kicked in because it was an environment where I realised how people feel when they come into work was now within my area of influence. Yeah. Previously, I was going in and, you know, well, you speak to friends and they're unhappy about their work or, or, or their environment. And you realise, well, sometimes people make a decision to accept that or not. And I, it really clicked with me that what people now think and how they feel about their job and what they say when they go home yeah. um, now falls under my responsibility. So because we were a small team, we had a, a really good social culture. We had um, a really good uh, 
uh, I think we had a, a good work ethic, but we also knew when it was time, we've done a lot of business. You know, we've had three hour call out in the morning. Yeah. Everyone's worked really hard. There's that natural moment where you've got a good professional understanding and everyone knows when it's okay to sort of relax a little bit. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> because we, we both worked in that office for such a long period of time, those people that stayed with us, from the six months to two years when we opened our second office. When I look at those people, they all became managers in our business. Yeah. And that's because they stayed, they worked directly with us long enough for us, for us to kind of, without even speaking it, but agree what our core values were as a business. Yeah. So when we expanded, when people worked with them, there was that kind of line and that thread of if you were if you were working in, say, our Chiswick office, but you hadn't worked with me directly, would you be working in a way that was in line with our company's core values? Probably because you were working, your manager yeah. had worked with me for two years and he was trying to cultivate that and carry that on in his branch. Um, so, so yeah, so that's... So the, I think the biggest challenge was when you, when you start growing and we grew very, very quickly... But the only reason we were able to do that is because we managed to re retain some really, really good people. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, there's always the growing pains. And I remember when, when we were growing our office network, the challenge was always keeping the consistency and the standards at the level you wanted. And it, it wasn't easy. Um, but actually looking at what you're saying, that, that's a good point, you know, because your team were there for a long time. And, and those guys went on to be managers and... Yeah, it filters down. If they weren't there for a really long time, it was quite interesting what you said there about you know uh, standards. Those standards are just set by people because yeah. it's not an automated business where you know it's a computer that picks up a phone and then yeah. registers someone and gives them a really good service and makes them feel valued. That's by that person. So you're only able to maintain those standards because that person really, really wants to do a good job. And if they don't enjoy where they work and they don't feel valued, then they're never going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So. Fast forward a little bit of time, you, yep. you exited Orchards. Yep, I exited in 2018. Um, uh, it was the year that I was getting married. I was looking at what we'd achieved so far. And, you know, we'd grown it to four offices. At some points, we had between 45 to 50 members of staff across all departments, um, including property management. And we had a sales office and a lettings office in each branch. Um, then we obviously had our accounts team. We had our marketing department. It kind of grew into like a big machine. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'd done some really great things that like we won some state agency of the times, um, uh, awards, yeah. uh, in different departments for sort of training development, uh, marketing, and um, we'd also created a, a magazine called Couture, which we used to um, circulate around our area. So we, we'd achieved some really, really good things that I, not just in terms of our business and the way it had grown, but some other interesting and exciting parts of our, of our industry that we had the opportunity to be part of. And, um, you know, I think what I was talking about earlier about uh, you know, when you reach a certain point in your career where you kind of want to go to that next level and what you want to do. And, I, and then once I'd actually owned my own estate agency and we'd, and we'd grown it, um, I really wasn't doing what I really enjoyed anymore, which was actually being an estate agent. I was overseeing kind of like a, a four office network that had two departments in each. So it's eight departments and then the property management department as well. It's nine. And it kind of, it kind of becomes a lot. And um, I, over the, uh, last few years of being in the business I basically just looked after 
my role was to uh, oversee all the revenue that came in through every department, nurture and guide our managers to be able to, for them to be able to be the best that they could be and also give direction through the team. Um, so I used to do a lot of our training there and then it moved more to looking after key account clients. So people that gave us regular business, yeah. large portfolio landlords, uh, getting involved in new homes. Um, so there were some rather large transactions that we got involved in, which then I found really exciting and interesting in a different way. And uh, so I wanted to get into property development, but due to the size of business that we had, there's that... Um, part of you that you know when you're growing and scaling for me it's about job satisfaction I think it doesn't matter what I'm doing I just from a self-esteem point of view I want to know that I'm doing a good job and I don't think I could have pursued property development yeah and uh felt like I was doing a good job and also kept an eye on my estate agency that balance just isn't possible because you've got our, our estate agency business was reliant on people feeling like they had a good leader and that they could report into and that I was available and there for them. So I made the decision to sell and then I started our property development business. And again, talking about, you know, business, my businesses are, you know, pro people and property, um, you know, like, you know, we know each other 18 years, uh, but my, my business partner now in Gecko. I've known him since 2010 and I met him because I sold him his house. Oh, really? That's how I met him, oh, yeah. yeah. So he owns a, a private um, client business uh, for large house refurbishments in, in and around, it works predominantly in the Chiswick area. And he bought his house in Acton. He was a local builder. He had his company. He had a really good reputation. And he bought an unmodernized house through me. So I sold him his house. And then uh, in Acton, funnily enough, I moved onto that road so we kind of got to know each other socially, yeah. sort of like six months after Bizarrely, and then I moved on to the same road. And uh, then we struck up a friendship. And there was that conversation that always came around of, you know, you know, we'd be really good in a team together. Maybe we should think about doing property development. And obviously the roles uh, naturally define themselves in terms of skill sets. And then the relationship just grew. You know, I'm um, godfather to his son. You know, he was groomsman at my wedding. So we've got a really good... It's a good bond there. Yeah, it's a good yeah. bond. And... Um, and then, yes, yeah, so when I sold, we then uh, set up Gecko Developments, secured funding. Yeah. And, you know, uh, my, my funding partner, that was my biggest line yeah. for a number of years. Talk about you don't know where relationships are going to go. That was someone um, who I'd actually worked with in an estate agency capacity yeah. for like 15 years. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so, you know... To, to so every basically I think in our industry talking about people um, you never know where a relationship's going to go yeah you know and I think that's just a good example of that the, for me the, the point is you know the short term agents the ones that are just looking at today's business and not beyond yeah. they'll never ever achieve enough really you need to look at long term relationships and as you say that's yeah. a pretty good example of how a long-term relationship can flourish into something new. Yeah, and, and I think, th think about that. If, I, if you were to ask me now, how would I go and make those business relationships? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would, I, where would you start? How do you go about doing that? But actually, the reality is those best business relationships comes when you're not looking for them, but you're actually doing what you do to the best of your ability and you're proving that you can add value. Yeah. And I think um, 
everything's about your business relationships and adding value within that. But also you've got to work with people who um, can own their areas of that business and are experts at what they do. Yeah. So while I'm a property developer, my business partner is an expert yeah. at project managing those sites and delivering those projects. Yeah. Um, and that's how we work really well together. Am I an expert in the areas that I work in yet? No, because of the amount of time that I've been doing it. But do I admire other developers who I've acted for for a number of years? And there's a few of them yeah. that are now my competition. Yeah. But we're really not competition in the scheme of things because they're doing much bigger schemes. Yeah. You know, and um, but we are now where they were a number of years ago. And I'll always look back and, you know, like much like you, when you go and see a development and you look at it and you think, I like what this person's done. I like their design. I like the way that they've exited this development. And you think, and so, you know, I've just really looked at what other people have done really, really well, but I've had the benefit of over the years of an, as an estate agent, watching what other people have done, maybe that hasn't worked and probably not having the expense of making that mistake myself. I'm not saying that we won't, we, we haven't made mistakes or we won't in the future, but I can see when one's coming yeah. because of the estate agency experience. So I think that serves me quite well in what I do now. So what was the first scheme for Gecko Developments? First scheme um, was number 40 Corfton Road, yeah. um, which is which, it's a really beautiful double front and detached house that had been in one family for over 50 years. So it was 4,600 square foot. So we got planning permission to extend that house and then convert it into nine apartments, which is over 6,600 square foot. Um, really, really, really impressive scheme. Looking back on it, um, when, when I, you know, it's actually quite interesting because we're going through the marketing process, well, finishing off some of our, you know, like our, our before and after photos on a couple of our projects because we've just relaunched a website. And when I look at it now, you know, I look at it, I just think, just what just as a building before yeah. we actually started working it was a re, it was already a really really good looking building you know it was a really impressive yeah. wooden house so yeah that was our first project and so from the the point of acquisition to selling the final unit what sort of time frame that was quite a long time actually because we got caught out by covid so oh, we yes. actually so we no we were looking at so i think when you're looking at each area that we own and um, we're 100% responsible for that. So looking at how do you, how do you, when, as an estate agent, I would go and meet developers and they would all say, um, if you've never seen their finished product before, they would always be able to um, sell a good version of what they're going to deliver. Now that may or may not turn out like that, but as an estate agent, you've already diluted your brand by saying to a potential buyer, this is what it's going to be. And it may not always turn out like that. So when we were going through a process of getting values on 40 Corfton Road before it was finished, it didn't matter that I was already known in the area as a representative estate agent. I had no reputation as a developer. Yeah. So um, we, all the agents had seen the plans. All the agents had uh, given their view on what things might be worth, but I asked for no valuations. And we we actually came up with the idea of doing something that no other agent had done at the time, which was try and create a show home, um, or actually, which was the top floor. You know, you go look at these large developers and they've got a 30-story tower, but they've got an off-site show home that someone's able to go and see, physically walk in and physically touch and get an idea of what that's going to be. And I think your end price point is defined by what the agents really think it's worth. 
and how well they can sell that value. And I knew that it would be impossible for an agent to sell that value unless they'd seen the product. So we actually focused on, uh, once we completed the structure and got the whole building watertight, we actually focused on completely finishing the top floor and sealing that off yep. while it was an active building site downstairs and completed three show apartments at the top. And then I got all the estate agents to come back and then they valued it, but they could see what our specification was. They could see how, um, and also have a really good idea of how the space was going to work in the other apartments where the partition walls weren't up yet because they could see how yeah. how the top floor was being finished. And at that point, we took values, but for the top floor only, set a really good price pound per square foot in the building. And then we actually worked through selling the building floor by floor. Um, and then we finished the building in uh, December and then locked down in the following February came. So we started work in um, late 2018 and we were completed and offsite by January 2020. Now, obviously, because we'd actually built uh, or finished the top floor, we'd actually managed to successfully sell seven of the apartments uh, uh, by the time we were pretty much offsite because we'd actually then obviously gone to finish the first floor, got a couple of sales away there also. And then lockdown, I think from memory happened in February, 2020, I think, yeah. or maybe or March. Yeah. <clears throat> and we had three sales left outstanding. Uh, we had two that were under offer and one, the last apartment, which was the hundred square meter, three bedroom garden flat, yeah. which was a really, really special flat. Um, uh, literally just the market just dried up because you know we'd never been no we'd never been in that space before no one knew um what was going to happen to the property market what was going to happen to the economy what would it look like after yeah. so there was a real air of uncertainty at the time obviously uh we now know that what happened with the property market was only upwards since then but at the time people there was a lot of uncertainty so the last flat didn't go under offer and then that didn't um that sale didn't get agreed until july so we would have exited the development successfully. Well, actually, we did exit successfully, but we would have that time scale would have been very different if yeah. it wasn't for lockdown. Um, and we uh, looked at what we'd done really, really well in our first development. And you know, I, I walk around that building, and I'm incredibly proud of what we achieved. But in terms of the workmanship and the quality and um, the way that it was finished, you know my business partner delivered that um he's done an absolutely fantastic job and i think you know prior to that no one had no one knew what our specification was going to be or the quality of our finish but i think because we're not like other developers where we outsource to a builder you know we we're a partnership where i deal with the acquisition of the site acquisition of the site the planning the design um, we both share the vision for the specification, kind of what it's going to look like fundamentally. Um, and then he'll take 100% ownership of that and deliver it. And I'll pick that back up again and take 100% ownership yeah. for exiting that development successfully. So the way that we were able to work together through uh, focusing on the top floor to become a show home, that would have been very difficult to do with an outside contractor. Um, so that's where we're really different as developers, but also... If we, because my business partner is on site every day and we're responsible for the way that that looks and the specification, I think 
what you'll have maybe sometimes in our industry is a developer who um, something uh, will be finished in a certain way. They may not be overly happy with it and think it's on point and is a good reflection of their brand, but because it's been done and you don't want to pay for it to be changed, yeah. which you will need to do with an outside contractor, they'll make a decision to compromise and let that go. So um, for, for us, we don't have that problem because the way that our quality control process that's managed by my business partner yep. daily, who's giving those instructions to the trades on site, and it's checked on later that day. Yeah, um, and also we're really passionate about the design and the way that it looks. So, kind of like in one of our on-site meetings, we'll be talking about you know how that will come together yeah. and what's possible. You know, we might have a great idea, and he'll quickly be able to give feedback on uh, as to why that won't work or how it will work, and using his expertise, how that will work better. And I'm always thinking about how um, functionally he's more thinking functionally how that will work and I'm thinking how will that look to a buyer and at a price point perspective that balance of space what are you expecting what's a really good size apartment and what's a good amount of storage what's going to sell well what's the balance of a good size bedroom versus a lounge what's the difference between an open plan kitchen lounge where you feel like you've got a sofa in your kitchen or you're cooking in your lounge because that space isn't big enough and what's the real amount of space that you need for a for a flat to say this is a functional open plan yeah. kitchen living space so. see I, I remember going into Corfton road i remember going before you had the show apartments mm-hmm. um okay. and then i remember coming back obviously when, when the work had been done and you definitely felt the difference um with some developments you know whether the developer has engaged with an agent for their advice or mm-hmm. an interior designer for their advice or has just decided to do it by themselves. Yeah. That's not normally the, the best outcome. Yeah. Um, but with, with Corton Road, you could tell that a lot of thought had gone into the design, the functionality, which you said, but also the, the workmanship was, was special. And for your first scheme, yeah. obviously you said you're proud of it, but you should be yeah. proud of it because it's yeah, a very cool you. development. Yeah. Um, I think it will stand the test of time. Well, actually saying that, thank you. It's re- it really nice of you to say. And I think it's actually really interesting. I went back there a few months. Well, I still go back there sort of regularly for, for various things. And I went back there. <clears throat> we created this, um, the communal garden. Yeah. We, we actually designed that ourselves. And it turned out to be a really, really great space. And what I was talking about, those little milestones is sort of where you look back over your career and think, oh, you know, this is a really good moment. I walked into the... Um, communal garden and saw a couple of residents sort of from different apartments just sort of hanging out in the garden and having um and having a conversation and you know how you'd expect uh, as a developer to be greeted by someone that you've just bought an apartment from because sometimes there are those snagging issues yeah the relationship that we've got um from a customer service point of view post-purchase is really good because we have built a really good product and we have had an ongoing relationship with them for different snagging issues so it was really nice to walk into the garden and actually see that small little snapshot of this is actually someone enjoying a space that you designed that we created is pretty cool actually yeah um and i think obviously the reason why why i talk about the specification and now after creating that show home i think from a brand perspective i think we're known for you know we don't have we're not a volume developer but you know we but we have got some, a really good pipeline of interesting sites that are all in really good prime locations in Ealing and I think now particularly after finishing Tenby House on top of Corfton Road I think we're known for um, 
you know, for delivering some really, really good, well-designed apartments. So. so one of the questions I got asked before, and this was not knowing that you were coming on a podcast with us, um, someone just asked me, someone that I know pretty well, said, how on earth are they able to spin the project so quickly and deliver that quality of finish? So I'm going to ask you that question. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's down to the expertise of my business partner. You know, he project manages the sites and runs that crit- critical path really, really well. But I think it's also, um, you know, there's that moment where you get, you know, when you acquire the site, you're working through your, uh, your planning application and you've got to work on the basis that it's going to be a success. You're going to have to make some amendments and tweaks that planning application if you need to. But once the application was submitted, I was already thinking about the detailed design of how that space would flow and engaging with my business partner to then look at, um, you know, because obviously what you've got is the outline plans that you're putting in for planning permission, but then you want to work through the detailed design process. So rather than just getting planning and then sort of starting on site and working out uh, some design points later, we also decided to try something different on this site where we looked at building a show home um this is and because that structure was already there yeah. that we extended and then made watertight at the top we this was a new build site so this it was uh, tenby house different challenge different challenge right so what it comes down to in answer to your question it's about being really organized and i think the difference between us and another developer is that going back to it um you look at it you think um what can I control and what can't I? And I think when you're dealing with an outside contractor where you're engaging with them to complete your development, there's um, a lot of time that is spent between them giving you feedback and needing an answer and needing you to go on site to then uh, make a change which is going to materially affect how that development looks, but not just a decision and how it will affect one apartment. It's got to be spread throughout the entire development. So because we're the developers and building it ourselves, we're able to have those meetings really swiftly on site. So, you know, we've got a critical path that we that we want to try and finish the development in. But also, as and when things come up and their problems, we're able to meet on site that day and solve them um, because we're finishing ourselves. So the in relation to um, uh, with, with this one being, a, you know, it was a 0.12 uh, acre of a site. It was a really strange 1950s house. Yeah, yeah. Right, which was actually only 1,200 square foot that sits in between two really stunning Edwardian houses on a road full of really good-looking yeah. Edwardian houses. Yeah. So I think in property development, you've got to either be first or be better. And in that case, we were first. Yeah. In terms of being able to secure that site, we, you know, we, we offered it on the day it went to market. We'd exchange on it within seven days. Um, so we moved pretty swiftly on it. But it was a real gamble because... Um, you know, when you look at it, you can see that there's potential for development. But in terms of massing, I think we we push the envelope of what's possible to achieve there. So you acquired that without planning? Without everything we've purchased, without planning. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of risk involved. Um, and so it was 1,200 square foot, that house. And we um, demolished the building and we developed six apartments across 3,600 square foot. And we started that build. The building was demolished in uh, January 2021. Yeah, January 21, we demolished the building. And um, we'd finished it in April 
2023. But by the time we'd got to the top floor, we'd actually made a decision quite late to build a virtual showroom. Yeah. Um, so we could actually confidently say when agents came to value it, I've seen their previous development. It was of a really good standard. Yeah. They're going to build the same specification here. And actually, I think they're probably going to go one better. And, and I actually think that we did in terms of the specification. Look, there's a couple of changes that we made. But there was... <clears throat> so how that worked is we had to really uh, think about our design, how it was going to look, choose everything right down to the finer detail. Um, and we then got a virtual digital showroom built from the CAD drawings. Yeah. And so actually I remember in flat three, which went under offer first, it was just an absolute shell. There was no doors, no windows. The room partitions weren't even there. And there was a really nice young lady who now lives in that flat, who I saw walking around with the agent using our iPad saying, oh, I can see how this is going to look. And there was a real moment where I was like, this is going to work. And actually, by the time, you know, we'd got watertight, we'd already sold two apartments. So by the time we were, by the time all of our uh, decorators left site on finishing the last apartment on the ground floor, as they were leaving, uh, three completions were taking place. And then out of the six, two were under offer. Yeah. And then the last one went under offer within four weeks of us leaving site. So, you know, when you look at um, trying to get better each time, what we realised is you really need to uh, be organised and make a decision about, I'm using my estate agency background, how are we going to exit yeah. this development? What's our strategy? And what we've decided to do on our other defence moving forward is implement uh, the virtual showroom. Yeah. But to do that you've got to make decisions on your design, your specification, how it's going to look. Commit to them. Commit to them, and you've got to back that. And I think that's all very well, that's all very, very good in in theory, but actually the only reason why I think we're able to do it really well is because we're doing the building work in-house. Like I said, we're, you know, with my business partner, Alistair, who, who, who project manages the schemes and does it incredibly well, but we're able to have that conversation there and then as and when sort of yeah. things come up. So, so yeah, so I, I think the virtual showroom worked, worked very well for us on that, on that development. And you obviously put a lot of emphasis on the marketing. The virtual showroom is, is part of that. Yeah. Um, but obviously we've worked together now in a separate capacity. In a separate capacity, yeah, we have. On the marketing side of things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think I can speak for our team. It's always enjoyable working with you guys because A, the product's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but also you guys get it and you, yeah. you believe in marketing. No, I hugely, and I think that comes from the estate agency background of, you know, like I said, when I was a estate agent, you were, you know, your marketing is two things, one, your client's property, but two of yourselves. And I think actually what's been really interesting for us is using Instagram yeah. and people buying in and you taking them on the journey of the development. So we started Instagram, our Instagram account, halfway through our Corfton Road project. And if I look at the level of engagement that we've actually had, you know, yes, people care about the finished product and it's great, but that means nothing unless they've seen that building come together. Yeah. And actually what's been really interesting when I've spoken to some people who I haven't seen in a long time or maybe socially, some of the things that they say, oh, I saw this and it looked pretty cool is, is actually more about Behind the, way, the scenes. Behind the scenes, yeah. the stuff that they saw come together. And I think we're able to demonstrate that really well because that's something that we're passionate about that we that we do really well so um so instagram's been a good tool for us as well and i remember when we first spoke about working together and helping you with the marketing side of things one of the sort of 
the ideas you had was allowing you to to add value to your suppliers as well and and sort of engage with them on, on a different level which i found quite interesting actually yeah i think well you know we um because we project manage the schemes ourselves all of the um the majority of the people that work on site work directly for us but you know you need to engage with specialists to do your groundworks um also to do bricklaying um your electricians and your plumbers all of those people they're outsourced so they work really really hard and they're um an integral part of our team and they're people that work with us consistently but um you know you yes we've done this but also uh, they've done their part and they're experts at what yeah. they do yeah. and we trust them that they've done it really really well and i think you got to be able to celebrate other people's success so for us when we're creating marketing saying we deliver this project this is what our work looks like those other trades have also contributed towards that so we're having conversations with them around, you know, sharing our marketing material because they've got Instagram accounts. They want to win other business as well that are people they want to work for and that they want to work with. And um, we're quite happy for them to say that they were part of this project because they were and used some of that marketing material. Yeah, that's interesting. It's um, it's just, you know, a lot of people now are starting to engage with, with social media. I know it's been around a long time now, but we've obviously seen it from our agency side. Yeah, it's been huge for us. Um, which is how we ended up with Ilpa Media. Um, but yeah, I find it, I found it really interesting, you know, that, that it's a different spin on things. Yeah. Engaging think, with your suppliers. Yeah. I think you just got to be, you know, really, really open that, um, you know, they can win other work and work with other people because they're bound to, but you, hopefully they're going to want to continue to work with you no matter how much, uh, how, how many other clients they pick up. Um, and I think, you know, showing marketing material, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've engaged with it and you've come up with the idea and taken the time to do it. They've been part of that journey. Yeah. And they also want to be able to say to people, I was part of this project, you know, I yeah. helped deliver that. So, Well, it's, it's more value than just the contract alone, isn't it? Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, what it generates after. So I'm aware of what you've done and I'm pretty sure I'm aware of the sites you've acquired. Yeah. You, you occasionally share that with me. Yeah. I know there's been one that's been a challenge yes more than the others yeah. do you want to talk talk through that yeah i can talk a bit about that so we've uh we've got three sites that we've also acquired that are in our pipeline and there's um something else that we're working on at the moment which i can't talk about yeah. but the three that i can talk about is 26 park hill um which is one of the nicest roads in Ealing, I think, Park Definitely, Hill. Definitely, I'd agree. Again, really stunning uh, road with some really beautiful houses and we bought the ugliest house on the nicest street. Yeah. So it's a 1950s house, which is uh, 2,200 square foot and we've got planning permission to develop, uh, to demolish the existing building um, and build a four-storey, including a basement, new build block, of eight apartments over nine and a half thousand square foot. Wow, um, it's a step step change. That that is. We've also then got planning permission. Uh, we've also got another site which is one nine seven Pitshanger Lane, uh, and we've that was a block of four apartments that all had tenants in it on um, on ASTs, and uh, we acquired that building. We actually never looked inside it. We acquired it with laid out as four flats with four tenants. But, you know, you've, um, like I was saying earlier, you've got to be first or better. You know, everyone was first on that one. Yeah. And there was, uh, you know, several of us bidding to acquire that site, but we managed to get the contract and we exchanged on it with the tenants in place 
kept the tenants in for a little bit while we went through a planning application we've secured planning permission to demolish the existing building build eight apartments which is over 5,600 square foot all apartments have outside space either gardens or balconies and I think you've got the CGI of what that building looks like do, yeah. and also the 26 Parkier one so you can put that on there as well um, so they're two really really amazing designs um, and then we've also got another site which is in Hanwell which is in Studley Grange Road recently acquired recently acquired which um, so uh, Park Hill and Pittsang are both um, have planning permission and we're starting to build both those next year and Sully Grange Road we're about to go in for planning permission it's actually quite an interesting site it's a T-shaped backland yeah. it's a backland site which is a, a, a T-shape which is an old caterer's yard actually the building um, was there was a caterer's business which was there for like 40 years so we're putting planning permission in for a muse development yeah which is a mixture of houses and apartments um, where there's going to be eight in total. So that that's going to be quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting scheme. We're working through the core principles of the design at the moment. I'm hoping to submit plan permission early next year. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, hurdles um, and talking about sort of problems that we had, we the, the 26 Park Hill site has been a real challenge. Yep. You know, we acquired the site uh, like everything. There's a planning risk. We successfully secured planning permission, um, but there was an objection to the covenant on the land from the neighbours next door. Um, uh, you know, we were uh, going to make an application to the upper tribunal anyway to release the covenant because we believed it to be obsolete. So uh, most of the buildings in Ealing, most of those period buildings, they've got covenants on them, which are you know a, a, there's a few different ones but they're derivative of all the same one which essentially says they're meant to be used for no more than one dwelling but if you look at most of those buildings they're all converted into apartments over the years or the majority of them are um and we ended up in quite a lengthy uh, court case that went all the way to the royal court of justice wow um we successfully won that case so the covenant's been removed from the title, yep. but that, you know, talking about risks, we were successful in planning, but there was an objection to the covenant that was out of our control. Yep. Um, but, you know, we saw the case through. So that's delayed us for 24 months. So that's, yeah. But that's just something that happens yep. um, and we'll I'm just saying. have to move forward. Yeah. So obviously at the moment, the media are doing their job of scaring everyone with market conditions and the world itself coming to an end probably is what their latest headline will be. Um, you're about to start two pretty hefty developments. Yeah. Positive or? I think um, if you were to, if, if we were to look at what... Um, what those schemes would look like and how we think they would go 24 months ago. I think, you know, um, if you look at the property market over a period of time, there's peaks and troughs. It just depends when you purchase and when you exit. Yeah. At what point you are on that. And I think um, every developer is going through a process at the moment of reassessing where do my end value sit? Are they still, are they still going to be what I thought they were when I bought it? The answer is probably no. Is my build cost going to be the same as I thought it was when I bought it? Definitely not. Yeah. So I think there's what we what we've got to look at is um, you've just got to make sure that you're working with people that you trust that are really good at what they do 
we, there's a certain level of acceptance that you need to have over um, uh, what materials are going to cost now. And I think the biggest uh, challenge is going to be what builds costs are going to be over the next sort of 24 months. But I think it will, you know, over the next year, will uh, materials go back to the same price? No, though I think they will balance out. Yeah. Um, but I think we're, we're quite fortunate in um, this, where our sites are located that, you know, if you look at Park Hill, it's a really popular road. Prime location. Prime location, Pitts Hanging Lane. <clears throat> it's, um, there hasn't been any new build block around there that's like that. Yeah. So I think we're going to be quite fortunate in that little micro market where there's going to be um, a high percentage of local per of local people that are going to be downsizing or want to have an apartment in that area yeah. and there actually aren't that many available so we're, we're going to be quite fortunate but even the handwell site will probably be fine possibly I, yeah, I mean, but handwell is yeah. really overdeveloped so I think there's quite a lot it going is, on but there's a lot of local buyers there especially the part of handwell yeah. you're in yeah I, I, I'd agree with that so I think we're going to be okay there but the reality is I don't think anyone is going to be achieving the same yeah in the next 24 months from a project that they started over 12 months ago because the market that we're working within has changed i think you've just got to accept it and look at what the best possible outcome is um and and we've looked at that and i think we're going to be fine we just accept that you know build costs are, uh, have gone up and that resale values are going to call yeah. you know um you know even if the market drops by 10 percent yeah. it will only go back to where prices were yeah. in January of 2020 anyway because there's been such a huge spike yeah. and if you've managed to sell developments during that time of that spike great but the reality is that that was a moment in time yeah. I think just like securing mortgage rates at 1% was a moment in time it was a very Indeed. long moment in time yeah. but it was a moment in time that we'll probably never see again yeah so before we get on to the other strings of your bow yeah the question I want to ask is twofold. So as a developer, and if you were giving advice to an agent now, so one for the developer, one for current agents, what would be your advice for next year? Um, what do you see being sort of pivotal to succeed in next year in the challenges we have? So I think <clears throat> as a developer, what you're going to have is you're going to have you're going to be looking at your budget and you're going to be looking at your build costs and you're going to think, am I going to compromise my core value on my product? And I know as an estate agent, when I've, uh, you know, I've worked through um, several ups in the market and several downs and what, what will always happen is that a buyer's always going to have choice. Yes, there's, there's a demand for housing in the UK, but within each micro market and small postcode, um, a buyer does have choice of what they want to purchase. And I think when the market's, you know, when the market's calling, a buyer's going to look at it and think, do I really, really want to be here? Is this where I really want to live? Is this to a standard that I would want to live in and does this represent good value money for me? And if, even if none of those things apply, is it special and is it what I really want? And I think where I've seen over the years as an estate agent, uh, developers have been stuck. You know, our, our industry's not going to stop. You know, people are still going to buy sites to develop them, build them out and exit. It depends whether you're going to exit successfully or not. And I think that's the point that we've looked at is that, you know, those margins on those deals aren't just aren't going to be the same. But what I'm not going to do is compromise on our core value of quality yeah. because I know that a buyer has choice. Yeah. So I know what I would rather is, regardless of its price point of where it sits in the market, 
if someone has the choice between purchasing our flat and someone else's, regardless of whether they're priced the same or not, um, I would want a buyer to come in and say, I love that flat. Yeah. It's finished really well. It's been designed really well. And the most important thing for me is that they don't think they've seen something similar. Yeah. Because I think if you're an uneducated buyer, you can go and see a flat and it kind of all looks the same. But if you understand the difference between quality, yeah. then you can't compare it. And I think for us, that's the main thing that th our developments may not sell out as quickly because there's been a change in the market and we need to understand and respect actually that a buyer's not going to come in and see it in the morning. And when a market's on the up, they're going to say, I need to buy this quickly and before someone else does. Yeah. Um, you know, buyers are just going to change the time that they make the decision in. And as long as when they're in that thinking process, they haven't seen anything else that's similar. I'm confident that we'll still, really, we'll still do really well because ultimately people are still going to say, I want to live there. Yeah. And if someone says they want to live there because they haven't seen anything better, then you're going to end up in a discussion with them about buying your flat above something else. Yeah. And our goal, you know, if I look at before as an estate agent, you know, in sales, you know, like ringing the deal bell, for example, yeah. you know, from the moment in time of when you get a call to meet a client, and you list that business, there's a milestone of when you've achieved something, and then you go through a marketing process and you'll sell it, and that moment of when you recognize it, it's been a success, maybe it's been like a month process, or it could be like a three-month process. Yeah. You know, for us, uh, that being a success is now like a 36-month process. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a really, that's a real change in my mindset that's been, it's been quite an interesting process to go through, where I was always invested in whatever I was doing, but it's over short periods of time. So for us, our development's not a success until it's 100% sold out. Yeah. So if we don't compromise on our core values, we'll be 100% sold out. But you can sell out of our next scheme of eight apartments. If you only sell seven of them, you're not a success because you're not 100% sold out. So we just got to make sure that we design a building that's finished really well, where bias recognised that there's value there. Yeah. It just depends whether it's at that price point where we're going to do a deal. So it's like best-in-class product. Yeah. And marketed. And marketed. So I think correctly. as a developer, you're going to make a decision whether you're going to compromise your finish to, because you've got to be budget-minded. And I think we are going to be budget-minded, but ultimately we're going to be design-led. Yeah. Because we know we're not a success until we sell out. Yeah. And I don't think it, over the change in the economy and the landscape of the next 24 months, you can take the risk of not selling out. Okay. So from an agent standpoint, I know you've not been an agent per se for a little while now but you've been through ups and downs so for the agency business owners out there what what would be your key advice to go through the next year yeah i think it's quite an interesting question and and you know talking about sort of the other things that i do obviously you know that i'm um i, I still uh, i'm a buying agent and also i um work as an estate agency consultant i have done a few businesses actually since i've left estate agency i just don't openly advertise it yeah and um and actually it, it's quite interesting when i think about when you when you ask that question because i haven't thought about it but it is really about focusing on your people and doubling down on the basics of the industry and doing every part of your process to 100% of your ability and i think if you're focusing really if you're really focusing on your people what's going to happen is they're going to radiate that outwards to the point where clients are going to want to do business with them. And I think what's happened in the industry over the last, and when I say focusing on, on your people, um, you know, we've had, in the time that we've been in the industry, we've seen people come into the industry and leave. And we've seen people come into the industry, do things really, really well, because they care about it. 
and stay in the industry and grow. And I think the people that stay in the industry and grow is because they're constantly spending time working out what they're doing really well and not changing it and making changes in the area where they're not. And I think when you're growing a team of where people are really focused, what you'll have is uh, a company or a team of estate agents where you've got really senior people that know what to do, that are not going to panic and can help an information share with other people who haven't been in the industry as long. Yeah. Because if you've been in the industry in the last like two years, you don't really know what a state agency is because there's just been a huge surge in the industry of people yeah. that want to buy. So you're billing business and you're doing it in quite a large volume, but really how much of that have you impacted? Yeah. And if you've worked in the industry in the last 10 years, um, we've had people who've had ability to purchase because the cost to borrow money has been low. Yeah. So what you're going to have now is, uh, you know, a landscape in, uh, in our industry where um, the cost to purchase that house has changed. So you're going to really consider that purchase. And um, you're going to really think about, is this home for me? How long am I going to stay here for? And people, I think when I talk about focusing on your team, that's because what our industry is going to become more of is very much um, you've got to be a real consultant the industry and, yeah. you've, and you've got to really understand what someone wants and why they want to be there and you've only really got that skill set if you're working around a team of people who've been here before and know what to do yeah. and I think if you're information sharing the large team and you're building confidence you're actually going to develop a team of really good salespeople who are able to reassure buyers and you're able to have a relationship with them where they're going to want to speak to you yeah. because you know buyers have choice now and you know over the last maybe year you've had a real desire to purchase so if it, if you miss an estate agent's call you're going to call them back you're almost chasing them to be able to get in to see something before anyone else does yeah. and now that's changed you know you don't want to be first you want to let it go to market because it's come on at a price that is probably the most that the house is worth and do I really want to pay that is that really worth it for me? Yes, I like it, but I'm not going to jump in and buy it. Um, so the length of time that we're going to be, well, or the length of time that estate age is going to have to nurture a relationship with someone yeah. is going to be stretched out increase, to a longer yeah. period of time. So it's interesting going, what you said earlier, though, about the, the sort of the sort of financial side of acquisition for, for the buyer now. Because mm. I, with the cost of living uh, crisis, I kind of, assumed it would be sub 1 million that that would affect but last week we had a a deal that's been agreed for three four weeks and the buyer's concern now is how much it's going to cost to run that house um with the increase in bills and yeah it's just it it, it sort of opened my eyes a little bit that actually this is not something that's just going to hit the lower part of the market it's 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 sort of market-wide and it mm. needs to be considered because obviously the running costs of a, a larger home can be quite substantial. Yeah, and I think the way that people are going to look at, the way that people look at their homes now is completely different. So, you know, uh, you know, several years ago, people, are like, so there's the three circles of compromise, price, property and area. And you're going to make decisions on what's the most important and but everything falls into those three categories. So if someone really wants to be in that area, they're going to compromise on that property because being in that area is the most important thing. Maybe being in that school catchment for their children to go to school, they'll compromise on the size of house or size of garden because 
getting a house in that area is more important for their child's education. Yeah. And some other parts of the house that um, they would have compromised on before, they now can't compromise on and won't compromise on because the way that we view our homes has completely changed since lockdown in a way that it never would have before. So now people are thinking, well, actually, space is more important to me because I do now work from home two or three days a week. I do. I am going to spend more time in my home than I ever have done before. So the way that people will look at their home has actually changed. So I think if you were, you know, like I said, if you've been in the industry for like three or four years, um, the way that the questions that we now ask a purchaser when we register them has completely changed. Yeah. Because it's completely changed since lockdown. So your formula that was successful for you of the way that you done business and built a relationship with someone um, because you had a set of registration questions that you think gave you the answers now no longer applies. Yeah. Also, um, because of the cost to borrow, that urgency isn't there because it's not as appealing or good value for a buyer. That's not there. And so really, over the next two or three years, I think it's going to be a real test of the agents um, that are going to make it and maybe some that aren't. But I think ultimately, you know, our industry consists of a lot of people who've been around a really, really long time. And I think agents who've been in the industry for the last, you know, one, two, three years, just probably need to look at what those guys are doing because they've been here before and they know what to do and they'll yeah. do it really well. Okay, good advice, good advice. So actually it takes us on nicely to your other element, I know you touched on it, but you're, you're training, you're acting as a consultant to, to some estate agency businesses. I am. Um, how did you get into that? It's quite interesting. Like when I, when I stopped being an estate agent, I still had a list of, you know, like I was talking about relationships and you never know where they're going to go. So like my, my two business partners now, my funding partner and my business partner in Gecko, they're people that I've known for a really, really long time. And being a state agent for the length of time that I have, I've still got a lot of knowledge which is of value to people. And, you know, it doesn't matter, you know what it's like when, when, you're, when you're seeing friends and they're involved in a, per, in a purchase or a transaction, you're just that person that they go to for advice. Yeah. So within my social network, I'm still the person that people go to for advice. And then um, after I left the state agency, I had a long list of people who are not people that I just done business with, but people that I genuinely liked who I stayed in contact with. So I've ended up um, consulting on sales independently and also acting as a buying agent. And I don't, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, that I'm not an estate agent anymore. There's nothing quite like doing a deal. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And, and we know that. And, and also when you're, when you're only representing a small handful of people um, that, that you really like working with, it's actually, it's, it's really, really enjoyable. Um, so I consult on some sales still and some large investment transactions and act, act as a buying agent for, for sort of a handful of people or, or on referral only. But also actually, you know, what I do is, as a property developer is now um, very, very different to being involved in a large team and actually once I sort of get talking about the estate agency topic or how to conduct evaluation or how to grow a team and how to kind of become a leader of people, which just kind of happened for me from sort of growing a team, I actually realised how much I miss that. And there is a part of me for, that is only satisfied from being in that space. So kind of like, you know, uh, anywhere between sort of three and sort of seven days a month, I'll act as a training consultant or a business consultant for only a couple of businesses to help them, to really help their managers 
develop teams yeah. um, and also work on uh, valuation strategy, conversion ratio, because it's all about when you look at an estate agency business, there's a long list of KPIs. And if you look at small changes in two or three of those areas, that can really add up to a large amount of business over a year. So this training involves you going into the office? Going into the office, uh, having regular one-to-ones with the managers, yeah. uh, conducting small one-to-one uh, uh training sessions with people that need help in you know because what you've got with estate agents are really people you know you've got a long list of processes from start to finish and then you've got people that are excellent at one part good at another and not so good at another part of it and probably won't visit that part so if you can build a relationship with someone where you can really understand where they need help and be able to talk to them uh, in their language yeah because really I'm probably first and foremost an estate agent before I'm a developer. I'm able to really talk to someone in a way where I can help them. And I really enjoy that actually. So I conduct large training sessions or independent ones, but only for a couple of businesses because obviously my main focus is Gecko Developments. But I think if I didn't do that, yeah. there'd be a part of me that isn't satisfied. Isn't fulfilled, yeah. yeah, and, I, and yeah. actually, I, you know, it was really, that's why I was looking at, when I was looking at sort of, you know, becoming a developer yeah. I don't think I could have kept my shares in Orchards of London as a business and um, also been a developer because I'm, whatever I do I want to do it to the best of my ability yeah. and I'm quite passionate about it so I would have been a developer but then also been hugely personally and financially invested in another business yeah. so the great thing for me now about consultancy from a training and development point of view is you know 85% of my time I'm a developer and that other 15% of me that actually regardless of whether it's a business or not and it's paid I'm doing something that I really really enjoy yeah I get to drop into a business um, be part of a bigger team talk about topics that I get really passionate about and quite engaged with where I can add value build self-esteem in another way of that I only really get you yeah. know aside yeah, from being yeah. part of a large team yeah and then go back to you know doing property development keeps your skills sharp yeah it keeps your skills sharp but also i think you know it from doing that i've still remained close to really what's going on in the property industry yeah um in 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 a way which i think has really helped me in our property development business yeah good so joe thanks for coming in it's uh it's been quite insightful actually it's been really good to talk to you connect um and the interesting thing as i said is this all started nearly 18 years ago professionally at rolf east then we became competitors. Indeed. And I disliked you for a number of years. <laughs> um, but it's all come sort of full circle now. So obviously we've got daughters of the same age. They yeah. get on really well together. Yeah, they hang out. It's pretty cute. It's really nice. Yeah, um, their relationship and friendship. Yeah, and the professional side has obviously come back. So it's been great working with you guys. Likewise. On the marketing side of things. And, um, you know, we are we touched on your consultancy work, but we're going to be bringing you in to the finer country business. Uh, in the new year to work with our team yeah, as well which I'm looking forward to um, and yeah I look forward to sort of following the sites and the progress that you've got um, and I'm sure we'll probably get you back in in 12 months time to to give us a rundown on yeah, how it's all gone to, to see how it's been going yeah it's been great to be here today and thanks for having me on thanks Joe